2: This is
3: the Tom Hartman Program. There's a couple of questions that I wanted to get into. Number one, why are so many Americans willing to support hate and division? And I mean this as a serious question. It's not just a throwaway. i get into some detail here. Donald Trump has told us, he tweeted, only 9,000 Americans have died from coronavirus. Everybody else had a pre-existing condition. They were old, they were overweight, they had diabetes, they had heart disease, they had asthma, whatever it may be. And uh, therefore, only 9,000 people have died of coronavirus. He also told us that shooting an unarmed man in the back seven times is the same thing as having a bad putt at golf. He told us that protests around America against his policies and against racism are actually being led by an airplane full of black jacketed thugs. Thugs, the word that uh, Trump has used most of his life to describe black people. And he refused to condemn a vicious murderer who killed two people and blew the arm off a third. While crying crocodile tears off another guy who got killed here in Portland, a right winger apparently shot by a left winger, But when left wingers get shot by right wingers, oh, well, that's self defense. That's just fine. And now he's threatening the mayor of Portland with federal troops again. Which raises the question is this the America that the majority of voters want to live in? Or even a substantial minority? I mean, a country where the police act as an occupying force and are relatively immune to oversight or discipline? A president who pits people against each other based on their religion or on the color of their skin? An administration that lies about science as about 200,000 Americans die? Corrupt former lobbyists in charge of virtually every federal agency? Cutting the social security tax so that the entire program collapses in the next three years? Is this what American wants? Well, if the polls are any indication, about half of Americans actually are right there with him. Why would that be? I mean, is the racism so deeply ingrained in the white community in America that white people will regularly turn out to vote for politicians who use racial dog whistles? Seems so. I mean, it's certainly worked for Republican candidates ever since Richard Nixon in 1968 with his Southern strategy. That was the direct result of the 1964-1965 passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. When Lyndon Johnson confided in Bill Moyers, his press aide at the time, that by signing those pieces of legislation, he worried that the Democratic Party might have lost the South for a generation. Well, it's been four generations since then, maybe three. And yeah, white people are still voting race hugely. The main subtext of Donald Trump's sales pitch and of the entire Republican convention, they're going to move into your suburban neighborhood. Those black people, those brown people, they're going to move into your suburban neighborhood. I will stop them. That was the message. The Republican Party will stop them. Mitch McConnell will stop them. Don't worry. Your property values aren't going to go down. You see, those are the two big memes, right? Black people are going to move into your neighborhood and, and burglarize your house and rape your wife and daughter, or black people are going to move, move into your neighborhood and your housing values are going to go down. And this is the Republican sales pitch. And it looks like somewhere in the neighborhood of half of America in Texas, it's 50-50. In Ohio, it's 50-50 right now between Joe Biden and Donald Trump half of Americans are like, yeah, that's our biggest fear. You know, COVID, well, not so much. The economy going in the town, well, you know. What can you say? As our nation sinks deeper and deeper into poverty, and make no mistake about it, that's exactly what's been happening for 40 years. As this nation sinks deeper and deeper into poverty, I mean, before the COVID crisis and, and, well, the Trump recession actually started in February before COVID, you know, when we had only five cases here in the United States or something like that. That's when our country went into recession. It was the end of, you know, the longest expansion in history, frankly. It was perfectly expected. But back then only 40% of American families could deal with a $400 expense and only 30 or 35% of American families could deal with a $1,000 unexpected expense. I'm guessing right now that number is probably more like 15 or 20% of Americans who could deal with that. And what happens is as people lose their economic security, as they lose their job safety, they become, frankly, more vulnerable to an authoritarian message. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that show that conservative voters have more authoritarian tendencies and that Trump followers are right at the top of that list. A few months ago, one of the big stories, I talked about it here on this program, you and I, talk, we, we all talked about it, that a substantial percentage, and I'm sorry I don't have the study right in front of me, so I, don't, I can't give you the exact number, but it was, something, it was in the 40% range think that if the military were to take over this country, it would be an okay thing or maybe even a good thing. Now, historically, when people asked, were asked that question, the number of people who said yes was around 5 10 15%, you know, in the same neighborhood of people who think that the second coming is next week and uh, UFOs are actually running the White House. So you've got this poll, also another one that, you know, basically this is about as police state authoritarian as you can get, you know, the military taking over the country. Or could it be both? Racism and authoritarianism. I mean, that right-wing media like Fox News and hate radio have so succeeded in selling racial fear so effectively to white people that even modest racist inclinations among some white people are enough to tip them into embracing violence and authoritarianism. And right now, nobody knows the answer. Why is it? this is from Psychology Today. Trump followers show five traits. Authoritarian personality syndrome, social dominance orientation. That's where you want to be part of a group that is viewed as the group on top. Prejudice. I mean, this goes back to Nixon's Southern strategy. A lack of contact with other groups. In other words, uh, well, in fact, studies have shown Trump's white supporters have significantly less contact with minorities than other Americans. And what's called relative deprivation. It means I feel like I'm not getting my share of what I'm entitled to. And of course, you know, the irony here is that who killed the middle class? Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party. Wendy Rittenhouse, Kyle Rittenhouse is this uh, 17-year-old who was driven from suburban or small town Antioch, Illinois, all the way up to Kenosha, Wisconsin with his AR-15 in the car. And then mom drops him off at the riot, or at the protest, or whatever you want to call it, and he kills two people and blows the arm off a third. And his lawyer, a guy by the name of John Pierce of Pierce Bainbridge, is arguing, according to this piece, Daily Kos, Annie L. Here's what it says. Rittenhouse's attorney, John Pierce of Pierce Bainbridge, plans to fight the underage weapons possession charge, arguing that at 17, his client could be part of the well-regulated militia mentioned in the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Which raises two questions. The first, should uh, Wendy Rittenhouse be arrested and uh, prosecuted? as an accomplice to murder for driving her son 20 miles with his AR-15. We don't know yet, but, you know, how he acquired It's illegal for a 17-year-old to own a weapon like this or any kind of gun in both Illinois and Wisconsin. So did she buy the gun for him and then drive him? I mean, you know, what the hell is going on with mom here? Inquiring minds would like to know. But this defense that he's going to mount, according to his lawyer, that he's a member of a well-regulated militia, you recall the Second Amendment, which was written back in the day, and this was my first book in the Hidden History series, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was written the way it was, when it was, in part— to provide an alternative to a standing army during time of peace. That was the original rationale for it and the thing that Jefferson and Madison had been pushing really, really hard for. And they were joined in that by Hamilton and Payne and and other anti-slavery, not-slave-owner types. But principally at the time and on the date, or in in that year, that the Second Amendment was finally written and edited to, say, a state rather than a nation, it was specifically to protect the slave patrols in Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia. Those were the states that said, basically, in the gratifying conventions in 1788 and 1789, where public figures like Patrick Henry came out and very loudly said, if you don't protect our slave patrols, then we're not signing this constitution. We're not joining the union. So, you know, is that going to be his defense? Well, then it goes on from there. David Newark writing for the Daily Kos here about Donald Trump in Portland. And now we've got the Oath Keepers, which is this group of sheriffs around the country, largely, who are keeping their oath that basically they are the supreme law enforcement officers and their leader a guy by the name of Stuart Rhodes, tweeted day before yesterday, the first shot has been fired, brother. Civil war is here right now. We'll give Trump one last chance to declare this a Marxist insurrection and suppress it as his duty demands. If he fails to do his duty, we will do ours. Now, let me just remind you that in Pastor Niemöller's famous poem, he starts out, First, they came for the trade unionists. The first war that Adolf Hitler declared was against Marxists. Right-wing actor James Woods tweeted, This is civil war now. Democrats are fine with conservatives being murdered for wearing a hat they don't like. They're going to keep attacking law-abiding citizens in frenzied mobs until they're dealt with the same way all bullies finally are. Over at the New Republic, Casey Michael wrote, they confirm that in the end, America's militia movement is little more than the heir to the white vigilantes that preceded it, the white rifle clubs and night riders terrorizing black Americans, the settler colonial vigilante groups leading America's ethnic cleansing campaigns across the American West. I would add to that the Klan... And then he goes on to say, "These supposed oath keepers are now the fascists for a would-be American duce, black-shirt shock troops in the campaign to maintain the nation's racial hierarchy, no matter how much bloodshed that goal requires." And uh, here we've got Post and Facebook from Rhodes. President Trump must declare it to be a Marxist insurrection. He needs to declare that Marxist insurrection to be nationwide, carried out by Antifa and Black Lives Matter, with the goal of terrorizing Americans into submission. Trump has both the power and the duty to call the militia into federal service to suppress this rebellion. He's not talking about the National Guard. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And Kyle Ruttenhouse's defense is apparently going to be that he was part of that militia. The old slave patrol is reincarnated. Are Trump's supporters principally driven by racism or authoritarianism? Let's examine the authoritarian side of that. John Dean knows something about authoritarian presidents. He was the White House counsel to Richard Nixon. He's got a new book out, Authoritarian Nightmare. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's been a while since he's been on the program. John, welcome back to the program and so glad to have you. I'm curious your thoughts about the correlation or the relationship between richard nixon and donald trump both their personal embrace of authoritarianism their personal embrace of racism their public embrace of both those things and to what extent nixon set up trump's presidency
4: it's been a good run since nixon so i don't see that as certainly a any kind of immediate precursor but nixon is clearly part of a trend in the republican party where racism became a core issue. It starts after Goldwater in 64 when he discovers that because of the actions of Lyndon Johnson on the civil rights legislation, he had really run the Southern Democrats out of the Democratic Party and they were more than welcome in the Republican Party. And they brought with them their racism, which has never never really been fully dissipated or or removed. It's quite striking. It's the original sin has been carried down generation after generation. So, yes, Nixon did carry racism forward. He was not a blatant bigot. He was anti-Semitic. You just look at the makeup of his White House, not unlike Trump's. There are just no black faces. There was one Black on the staff, Bob Brown, very pleasant guy, didn't have much responsibility. So Nixon actually had admirations for some blacks. So Senator Brooke of Massachusetts, he thought was a great senator, and he admired him for getting elected and getting his way to the Senate. So he, he did so speak highly. He might have been not,
3: not been a fulminating racist himself, but he was willing to employ it for political purposes with the Southern strategy. Is Donald Trump like that, or is he a fulminating racist himself? And how does this tie into authoritarianism?
4: I think Trump's a fulminator, <laughs> to, to use your <laughs> okay. word. And he is various levels of volume on his fulmination. He doesn't push it too far. What's the relationship between racism and authoritarianism? There is a correlation. One of the things in doing the book we did, we relied on science, actually some 40 years of science, 50 years close to it, of trying to understand people who were attracted to an authoritarian leader. It really started after World War II when German scientists just couldn't understand how a nation like Germany or Italy could be attracted to a Hitler or a Mussolini. They came over here to Berkeley and began their studies. It's really that ongoing study has gotten much more sophisticated, much more scientific, uh, and it, it is a direct thread from post-World War II era to today watching these people. It's not a mainstream bit of psychology or sociology, but they are there. In fact, I've been pleased to read some tweets of people who are in these fields saying, thank God somebody has finally come out and explained what's going on with Trump's followers. And it's its a, something of a mystery why nobody did, Tom, and that's one of the reasons we did the book We Did. Who are these people? We scientifically tested to make sure that this science was right. There are two types of authoritarian personalities that are predominant. The so-called social dominators, those who would be leaders but are willing to follow to get up the ladder themselves and get their shot at leading. They're typically men. They have very dominating personalities. They openly oppose equality, and they're desirous of personal power, plus almost universally amoral. So with those key criteria, they fit social science's definition of a social dominator. The right-wing authoritarian follower, that's a scale that's been used to test them over 40, 50 years now, both men and women. They are submissive to authority. They're then aggressive on behalf of that authority and highly conventional in their life. Now, these people have been tested for many other personality traits. Some are attractive traits. Some are not such attractive traits. But they, because of our relying on old science, if you will, or consistent patterns of science, we did a poll through the Mammoth Polling Institute A national survey, we started with a pool of about 230,000 people, got it down to a representative pool of American voters that was 990. They took an online battery of tests, personality tests. Not only did they answer polling questions, they spent maybe a half hour to 45 minutes to take a battery of personality tests. And sure enough, Trump's followers are solid authoritarian personalities.
3: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. What causes people to be authoritarian followers? Is it childhood trauma? Is it genetic, uh, you know, like temperament? I mean, what's the deal here?
4: It is both nature and nurture. Altmaier, my collaborator, who's been years testing these people, thinks it's predominantly child rearing and the influence that parents have on their kids. And if the child has a disposition to one way or the other, to either be a dominator or a follower, that can be accentuated through rearing. And so it's probably more nurture than nature.
3: Yeah. In the last couple of weeks, I've read uh, Mary Trump's book, and I've read this new book, Hatemonger, by Gene Guerrero, about Stephen Miller. And both of them had basically abusive distant fathers who were very, very rich and, were, and that was like the single focus of their life. Is that the kind of thing that turns people into authoritarians? Definitely.
4: We actually didn't know Mary was writing a book. Mary Trump was writing a book. So we explore much of the same material that she did. We found it in the public record and were able to document very clear that Donald Trump's authoritarianism comes from his, directly from his father and the influence his father had on him. As Mary says, nobody's ever loved this poor man.
3: And in the half minute we have left, what does that tell us about what we should be doing as a nation, both to deal with these authoritarians and to raise our kids so they're not like this?
4: Defeat them at the poll. They're people who do not do well in democracy. They are largely unreachable. They're not going to change their mind. Maybe a few of them on the fringe are upset, discover they're deeply prejudiced. So the only real answer is defeating them at the polls. They're not good for democracy.
3: And for the long-term nurture and support our children.
4: Yes. (laughs) Education. Yeah.
3: Yeah, there we go. John W. Dean, his new book, Authoritarian Nightmare, along with Bob Altemeyer. It's brilliant. you got to check it out. John, thanks so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thanks, Tom. Leonard in Pasadena, California. Hey, Leonard, what's on your mind today?
2: Racism is a business model. It's not white people. It's greedy people. Money is their God. Greed is their religion. Yeah, they started this when they first came over here, attacking everybody and just saying, they're inferior, now I get to take your stuff.
3: Yeah, yeah, I can't explicitly disagree with that. I mean, this country was built on racism. We were built on the largest genocide in the history of the world. And then we began slavery. I mean, it's just, I mean, we didn't begin it, obviously, but we, you know, brought it to these shores. Jared, in Downeyes, in Pennsylvania. Jared, what's up? Trump's recent comments with an interview with one of the blondes from Fox News. I, I don't really care their names.
5: They're all pretty much the same person. And uh, she was interviewing him and basically asked him, like, okay, I forget what the question was, but basically, we're talking about the protests. She said, well, who's leading the protests? He says it's somebody we've apparently never heard of. Or was it leading
3: biden i don't know one or the other but somebody it was who's both. never heard of it was Huck. both yeah. He's, he's yeah he's alleging that these folks are control joe biden i think control was his word and that they're leading the protests and they're a bunch of thugs which is trump's word for black people who fly around on airplanes all dressed in black if i was a thug flying around the country to lead protests. I don't think I'd be, you know, along with a bunch of my buddies, I don't think that we would all be dressed in black to get on a commercial airplane. I mean, that's a a great way to get security called on you. These are fantasies, Jared. He's just living in this racist, paranoid fantasy world. That specific meme is running off a several-month-old post on Facebook that went viral where this guy posted this thing saying that this is... This is on Facebook. Quote, at least a dozen males got off the plane in Boise from Seattle dressed from head to toe in black. Be ready for attacks downtown and residential areas. One of these passengers had a tattoo on his arm that said Antifa. This is the kind of stuff I mean, we had a bunch of of these so-called Proud Boys show or or actually they call themselves show up in a small town here in Oregon a month or so ago. Because somebody on Facebook had posted this thing saying, Antifa's coming to your town. There's hundreds of black people coming in a bus. All these guys were downtown with guns. and Nobody showed up. It turns out the post came from Russia or something. I mean, it was just, they were just being played. Whoever's provoking this, Jared, is playing Trump as much as anybody else. And it's just very distressing. Jared, thank you for the call. Arlene in Denver. Hey, Arlene, what's up?
5: I just had to call in. Um inst- Trump gets in again. I'm not calling him my president because I don't feel that way. But if he gets in again, I may have to leave the country. I really can't take it. It is it is hurting mine everything. I'm a Christian. I'm African American. I'm 57 years old. I'm a veteran, and nothing he stands for is aligned with any of that. I just don't understand why they can't see it. I, I never understood that the hatred was this deep or this ingrained in some people. I just do not get it.
3: Number one, I think the hatred part of it in the white community, a racial hatred like that, is a very, very small slice. The three percenters, the proud boys, the patriot prayer people, the people who are motivated principally, it appears, by racial hatred, are probably less than you know a fraction of 1%. But I think that probably white people who are walking around with hate in their hearts is probably 10%, 20% of the white population. But there's that other 30, 40, 50% for whom it's like, oh, I just don't know those people that well, those people in quotes, I'm uncomfortable, I'd rather be with my own people, that kind of stuff, right? Which has been basically the soft racism that has been driving all of this forever. And that's what Nixon tapped into. And that's what Trump is trying to tap into, although he's using the bazooka of hate To get there. But with regard to leaving the country, Arlene, did you see what Canada did about three weeks ago? There was an American who drove up to Canada, somehow avoided the border because we've got a huge border. It's easy to sneak through the woods. This guy apparently took a logging trail through the forest, ended up in Canada, was staying with some friends in Canada. The police came and got him. He's in jail right now. He's looking at a six-month jail term. And I think it was a $100,000 fine, some massive fine for being in the country illegally in Canada? I mean, they're going after Americans right now. Where are you going to go? Honestly, if I were to leave the country, it'd be someplace like Ghana. (laughs) It wouldn't be to
5: another white country, honestly. Yeah, I get it. It it just wouldn't.
3: Does Ghana have an open immigration policy?
5: Yes, they do. They've opened African-Americans with open arms.
3: And I never thought I would
5: ever in my life say this, because I love America i fought for America, yeah. but I can't, not anymore. I just can't. Yeah.
3: So Ghana is becoming like the African-American Israel.
5: Yeah, exactly. I, I have friends the who've already world. moved there.
3: Yeah, remarkable. Well, Arlene, let us hope that it doesn't come to that. I would miss you. And I know that your sentiment, by the way, is not, you're not the only one feeling this way. And people of all races, people of all fill-in-the-blank, just Americans across the board are watching what's going on and and saying, you know, if he gets reelected, things are going to change radically, rapidly for the worst, and I'm not sure I want to be a part of it. This is an absolutely scary time. Arlene, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up?
2: Well, you know, I was really hoping that I would follow Arlene, because i got to tell you something, And but this isn't new to me. I have, since I was in my 20s and graduated from college, said to myself that I do not want to die in the United States. To me, as a black man, or this type of black man, it would be like dying in prison. Because of the unique way that we came here, unlike any other Americans, we did not have a choice. And I've had a conversation with you some years ago as to whether or not black people are really Americans. And if we are, we're vastly different than others. But that's not why I wanted to call. But I was struck by her uh, commentary. And if the opportunity presents itself before I uh, take my last gasp of air, I want to get the hell out of the United States. I do not love the United States. I don't loathe her either. But I don't see any reason that is logical why I would. I wanted to say to you, you'd spoken about this kid at Rittenhouse, is that his name? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny, Tom, that all of these protests, or much of this protest, is about the killings of unarmed black people, whether it be Breonna Taylor or George Floyd or uh, Mr. Blake. And it's funny that all the killings seem to be done by armed white guys, or whatever side of the fence they're on whether it's Portland or this guy, and and, and, you know, it's really weird. And this kid, Rittenhouse, he walked down the street with a gun, and the cops gave him water. Reminds me of Dylan Roof, who went into a black church and slaughtered nine black people and was taken to Burger King. You know, I don't know who this conversation is between. I think maybe it's just between white people, because it's very clear what's going on in this country to me. How can you have such a disparity? And as far as Donald Trump, as I mentioned to you before, fear, white people's fear will always work. It will always work. When you spoke at the beginning of your program, you talked about Trump kind of fomenting this black people are going to come into your neighborhoods. These black people are going to. You didn't say, and I'm not, not criticizing you. You were absolutely right. That is the sentiment. But the thing is, is it's not these Mexican people or these Asian people. No, it's these black people. And I have to remind white America. That your black problem is a self inflicted wound because you could have left us where we were.
3: Yeah, yeah, I get it. But that was 400 years ago and this is now. And so I think, you know, we really Uh, need to be talking, Kenyatta, about what we're going to do. We talk about. I'm moving to Norway and you moving to Ghana. There's no solution. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. Kenyatta, I'm out of time here, but thank you for the call. And as always, your thoughtful and insightful comments. It's nice to hear from you. And I look forward to the next piece you publish over at op News. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to NetSuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman.
0: be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
3: John in Seattle. Hey, John, what's on your mind?
2: There? No, thanks, Tom. Well, following on your your last caller, I'm a white person who's afraid, but I'm afraid of Trump. And just wanted to ask your thoughts on whether he's doing this on purpose so he can foment violence and give himself and good old Bill Barr a chance to declare a national emergency and instate
3: martial law? Of course he is. The (laughs) national emergency martial law, you know, uh, suspend elections, clamp down on America part, wouldn't surprise me if he could make it happen. But I think that his equation is very simple. If, If he can get a lot of, in particular, black people in the streets acting badly, burning buildings and things. If he can get that to happen, he wins. I mean, look at the imagery that he's using in his advertising. Watch Fox News for an hour sometime in the evening and look at the video that they're using. You will just totally get it, John, that, you know, there's a reason why in the past, whether it was the riots in the late 60s or the early 70s, you know, after Rodney King in the, what, 90s, as I recall, fill in the blank, right? There's a reason why every president, including Republican presidents, by and large, in the past, when we've had a national crisis like this, as, as, the, as, as black people have said, you know, enough to white racism and violence directed against them, that every past president has tried to essentially heal America, has, has, has made some effort, at least a rhetorical effort, to pull people together. Arguably with the exception of Richard Nixon, although even as president Richard Nixon said the right things, it was just his campaign, his advertising campaigns used those images. And the, you know the same with George Herbert Walker Bush. He spoke very high-minded and then he had Lee Atwater go out with his Willie Horton ad. Basically, prior to Trump, presidents have seen their job as leaving this country intact bringing us together. And I'm convinced that he thinks that the only way he's going to avoid going to prison in six months Mm -hmm. is to tear this country, is to set this country on fire.
5: Have
2: you said, uh, said in the past, I think quoting a Doonesbury character, never bet against a caged rat with nothing to lose if he goes abnormal?
3: And that's exactly what's going on. This guy, Donald Trump, and many of the people around him. I mean, you know, his national security advisor has committed crimes. He's, in my opinion, Bill Barr has committed crimes. He's got a whole bunch of people in positions of power around him who are either complicit in his crimes in a way that could near legal responsibility to them or have committed their own crimes. And, you know, they're all as scared as he is that he gets thrown out of office and somebody comes in and says, we're going to start holding people accountable. And that fear of normalcy, the fear of who's going to go to jail if things go to normal, is driving things, frankly, as much as, yes, dear leader. You'll recall I told you about Michael Flynn and the District Court of Columbia. Appeals Court, a three-judge panel in the circuit court ruled two to one that the House cannot enforce a subpoena against Don McGahn. This is shocking. Two out of three judges said that the House of Representatives has no mechanism to force Don McGahn to testify before the House in their oversight role, which is laid out in the Constitution. And the reason why is they said that there is no specific law that has to be followed. It's merely in the Constitution. But it doesn't have the specifics of exactly who and how and how do you enforce it and how do you nail people if they don't go along with it. This is being referred to by some as an earth-shattering decision. It radically increases the power of the White House. I mean, this is this is just breathtaking. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has a new doctor on his panel. The guy refers to himself as the anti-Fauci. Seriously, his name is Scott Atlas. Is he an expert on infectious disease? No, he doesn't deal with infectious disease. He doesn't deal with infections at all. He's a radiologist, a radiologist who is especially is looking at nerves using radiation. No background whatsoever in the study or treatment of infectious diseases outside of just basic medical school stuff. This, according to the Washington Post, Atlas has argued both internally and in public that an increased case count, that is more people getting infected with COVID, an increased case count will move the nation more quickly to herd immunity and won't lead to more deaths if the vulnerable are protected. The problem with that is that, so here's his theory in a nutshell, and, and he was laying this out on Fox News a month or so ago, which, and Trump watched him on Fox News and said, get that guy in here, he's going to be part of my team. And he is now part of Trump's team. And basically, you know, the argument that he was making was that this virus doesn't kill people who are basically under 50 as frequently as it does people who are over 50. It does kill some. I mean, it has killed little children. But they're the exception rather than the rule. It does cause, apparently, in about 60 to 80% of cases, permanent heart damage. It can cause strokes. It can cause dementia. I mean, there's a whole bunch of side effects from this disease, ongoing heart inflammation. You've got baseball players who've gotten it who can't play now, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it does have all those problems. But It mostly just kills older people and people who are seriously not healthy, typically because they're obese. Those are the two major things that will cause you to die if you get coronavirus, or if you're over 60, or over 50, but particularly if you're over 60, or if you're really significantly overweight, which is a third of America. So basically his theory is, if we were to simply infect all the skinny people who are under 50 in America, that two-thirds of of Americans, they will develop immunity to the disease. The side effects of their having ongoing heart disease or dementia or strokes or other things like that are not something that we're going to even put into the equation. And once you hit about 70, 75, 80% of the population having had the disease, then those people who are vulnerable, the third of Americans who are overweight and the, I don't know what the percentage of Americans over the age of 60 is, but whatever it is, that chunk of Americans who are over 60, then they will be safe because the disease will stop circulating through the population. And actually, you know, if we all lived in nice little airtight bubbles, where skinny people never interacted with fat people, where young people never interacted with old people, where we all lived in our own little isolated galt's gulch, in our own little mini libertarian paradises, then, you know, maybe Scott Atlas has something. But the simple fact of the matter is that, you know, the more skinny, young, healthy people you get infected, the more obese or elderly people are going to end up with this disease because we live in a society. We live with each other. We work with each other. We interact with each other in the world, in the workplace, in the stores and, you know, whatever it may be. The Washington Post also notes the United States has a higher number of vulnerable people of all ages because of high rates of heart and lung disease and obesity, and millions of vulnerable people live outside nursing homes, many in the same households with children whom Atlas believes should return to school. So this is the Washington Post's on this. And, you know, the best science suggests that if we simply let this thing just run wild in America to try to develop herd immunity, at least two million Americans would die maybe many more, and tens of millions would be permanently, individually disabled. Mostly with heart disease, but with other conditions related to the heart. You know, SARS stands for uh, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, as I recall, or Sudden Acute Respiratory Syndrome. In other words, a disease of the lungs. And the first SARS virus was a coronavirus, and this is where SARS came from, actually just hit the lungs. But this SARS virus hits the lungs as a side effect of it's hitting the blood vessels. And it's just that the lungs happen to have probably the highest concentration of the smallest blood vessels in the body because they're, this is where we exchange oxygen with the atmosphere. We take air, oxygen out of the atmosphere, put it into our bloodstream, and then we take waste material from metabolism, carbon dioxide, from our bloodstream and, and put it into the air in our lungs so it can be exhaled. So there's just this huge interface, large chunks of, of our blood basically being aerated with every breath. And so because there's all those blood vessels, that's where COVID seems to be showing up first. But it's actually hitting the entire vascular structure, the entire veins and arteries of the entire body. It's how it's causing you know brain strokes. It's how it's causing heart attacks. It's how it's causing people to lose limbs. People are losing limbs all over the place because you're getting massive blood clots. You know, The inside of the veins and arteries is actually becoming inflamed by this disease. I mean, Sweden tried this for a little while, and they've just said, this is just bat guano crazy. Don't do this. And Mr. Hancock, I believe his name is, the public health minister in the United Kingdom, suggested trying this, and Boris Johnson was all in on it for a while, until people started dying at such high rates that the hospitals couldn't handle it. So here we are. We've got a new doctor in the White House. This is apparently going to be the new shtick from Trump. I think, frankly, he was rolling this out with his uh, Nuremberg rally the other day at the White House where he had 1,500 people sitting elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. As I tweeted at the time, the two words I have not heard any commentators, any news reporters mention are Herman Cain. You know, the guy who went to the Trump rally in Oklahoma and then died from COVID. Well, Herman Cain was 74 years old. and He was black. What do you expect? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. What is this, the new eugenics? Is this Trump's new way to deal with minorities because they're more likely to die?
2: This is
3: the Tom Hartman program. What do you think? June in Knoxville, Iowa. Hey, June, what's up?
0: Trump's insanity is contagious, just as Hitler's was. But the only difference between Trump and Hitler is that Hitler had to build gas chambers. And Trump is using this virus to get rid of the people he thinks he doesn't want in this country anymore.
1: Well, Hitler did
3: that for quite a number of years first. I mean, you know, go back and look at Kristallnacht, for example.
0: Sure, sure. Well, Trump's got his own ideas about things, but after his tweets, I believe that he's using this law and order thing to deflect from the virus because he doesn't want to be held accountable. And after the tweets, I almost believe that he's wanting to start a racial war, another civil war in this country. Other presidents have started little scrimmages and wars in order to bring attention to them when they were trying to get elected. And we were really concerned about, you know, China and Iran and all these other countries, even Russia. But I think he's going to use our own country, our own country and our own people to try to start a civil war. And as far as having this positive thinking with the Democrats, that is really important. But more than that, I think Trump needs to be held accountable for everything that he does over and over and over again, the way he tells his lies over and over and over again. What do you think?
3: Yeah, Yeah. I am absolutely with you, June. I do think that mental illness is contagious. I think what Trump is spreading is racist hatred and paranoia. And I think that it's not unreasonable to argue that racism is a form of mental illness and a contagious one. And now we're seeing these reports about racist groups intentionally targeting police departments and the military for infiltration. This is not a healthy thing for this country. June, thank you. Thank you for your thoughts. Sheila in Talent, Oregon. Hey, Sheila, what's up?
1: I wanted to comment on the RNCs. The first night, especially, I took that as a 21st century Klan rally. And I know that some people say that's a stretch too far. And I would say that before there was Nazis, there was the Klan. And listening to it, they could have played Birth of a Nation on a loop. It said It was the same message. It's a message of fear and hatred. It's a message about the other is coming to take your home, your land, your jobs, your women. That's at the core of white supremacy. And it was like listening to the pages, the squires, come out and try to find good things to say about Trump, their imperial wizard. It is the 21st century. They traded in their robes for suits and ties and boutique dresses, but it is still clan speak. And the thing that is just so overwhelming is how it's presented in such a clean way. And people need to know that the Klan was not at its most powerful in the South, in the very early days, the first Klan, but it became more powerful when it went north. I mean, it's, the seat of the Klan was extremely powerful in Indiana, Kansas State, and I wonder about his ancestry and any family connections they may have had. Preachers oh. spoke at the Klan meetings. They gave speeches that made everybody feel good and at the same time, but be afraid of the other. They should know their place. And yeah, The Klan uh, presented itself heard,
3: as a white Christian organization. I mean, in the election well, of 1876, yes. there mm-hmm. were three southern states that couldn't certify their vote because they said they were occupied by the northern forces. But Oregon didn't certify its vote either because it was occupied mm-hmm. by the Klan. Back to you, Shirley.
1: Yes, the Klan was here. Lots of former Confederates came out this way. And we need to recognize that history. We need to recognize what this is. No, they're not walking around in streets. No, they're not burning across. But they are the new Klan. And Hitler admired the Klan. Some of his thinking came from that sort of thinking, the way that they thought. And when I heard Kellyanne Conway, what was it, two nights later, I think it was still going on when she talked about how the violence was good for Trump. Then we have the rally, the Trump rally that takes place in Portland. If we don't realize that she sent out the little code speak, whether she did it subconsciously or consciously, to tell people to get in there and bump heads with the protesters for Black Lives Matter, the, this idea of having a race war has been going on for a long t- way back. I remember the militias that started in the 70s and what their message was. And mm-hmm. we just thought
3: a I bunch of to. nuts. Donald Trump tweeted when Barack Obama was up for reelection, he said any day now, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he tweeted this multiple times. Any day now, Barack Obama going to start a war with Iran because he knows he needs a war in order to get reelected. And I've been saying on this program for three and a half years that Donald Trump's October surprise is going to be to create a war with Iran or North Korea or maybe even some sort of limited conflict, perhaps with a wink and a nod with Russia or with China. But it's starting to look to me like he's trying to start a war right here in the United States. It's to his benefit to have
1: us killing each other, to have this. He's trying to make the protesters look like looters and criminals. And we know that provocateurs are there. This is organized. We need to
3: understand that. Absolutely. Sheila, i got to run, but thank you for the call. What is the Tom Hartman program. Fair and only slightly on that. Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com
2: for audio and video archives.
3: Robert in Fairbanks, Alaska. Hey, Robert, what's up? To the liberal left, I think if you would read George
6: Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, you'd find that that's a problem the left has. We're so diffuse. We have people from the society prevention of cruelty to animals. All the way to, I'm personally, I have a desire to want to take up arms against the right, you know, like Spanish civil war. But I, I don't Not a good idea,
3: Robert.
6: No, it's not a good idea. And I don't, I don't have any, I'm 74 years old, suffering from cancer. So I'm pretty, I've been pretty well denudded that way. But I just think that the problem, I don't know how the left can organize because fascists, system can always beat a diffuse system. I mean, the history of the Spanish Civil War shows that. And I yeah, don't and think the many of people Germany realize does that George, or- George Orwell took a bullet right through the neck during that war. You know that?
3: I he didn't got know shot- that, no.
6: He got shot through the neck. It didn't kill him. But if you read his story, it's how difficult it is for left-wing people to organize against somebody like Donald Trump. The guy is a Fascist, and I can't stand yeah.
3: it. We can't use language like that on the air, so I'm going to have to let you go. But um, but the bottom line is dealing with fascism has always been a struggle for every country around the world. If you read uh, William Shearer's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, it was the same situation. And you had the labor unions and the Marxists and other marginalized groups who were essentially fighting with each other instead of fighting Hitler in the early days. You know we need to we need to pull together here.
0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact.
2: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
3: Tom Hartman here with you. The whole news cycle right now is just in some ways, you know, making my head explode. First of all, thank God, Joe Biden came out and said looting is not protest. And intimidating and killing protesters is not protest. What we've got going on on the Trump side, two dead in Kenosha and one with his arm blown off. And what we've got here in Portland with, with you know, a dead right winner they're both wrong. This whole thing is wrong. And Donald Trump, because he's so weak and because he's so scared, is promoting this kind of violence. And he's frankly promoting it on both sides because Donald Trump believes that if he can upset and anger and freak out and frighten enough people, quote, on the left, that is, you know, just normal Americans and Americans who would like to live in a country where everybody has a shot at the American dream. If he can freak out and piss off and frighten enough of those folks, they're going to show up in the street. We're going to show up in the streets. And that will produce some good video that they can use to scare people on Fox News. You know, virtually all of the protests in Portland that were happening when Trump's feds were here were in a, three square block area, concentrated on one building. After that building had gotten tagged and was covered with graffiti, basically, this was the federal building, people basically making their statements, as it were, and I'm not defending that at all. That's vandalism. But nonetheless, once that was done, they put a fence around it so nobody could get in, because some of the tagging a block away, literally people from the community, people who were protesting at night were coming out in the morning and cleaning up the graffiti. But they kept this one building with a fence around it that the police would come out in the evening and stand in front of that looked like something out of a movie depicting a war zone in a third world country because it was the perfect set. They manipulated essentially or facilitated protesters creating a and some of them, let's be very clear, were not protesters. They were vandals. But the Trump administration got these guys to create for them their TV set that they could use on Fox News and right-wing hate radio. On radio, of course, you can't see the pictures, but you get what I'm saying. And all over the right-wing memosphere, Facebook has become an absolute right-wing cesspool. And then you've got all these right-wing websites and, and, quote, news sources Funded by right-wing billionaires, free right-wing newspapers like the Washington Examiner, the New York Post, in New York, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They have a robust information system because it's been well-funded by billionaires and big corporations since the Powell Memo in 1971. And nothing like that exists on the left. I mean, the closest you can get to a left-wing media infrastructure is, what, is how you're listening to me or how you're watching me right now. It's, you know, the Sirius XM Progress. It's a handful of progressive radio stations around the country, commercial radio stations. It's, it's a handful of, of uh, in terms of audience share, a handful of uh, progressive Pacifica stations, nonprofit stations around the country. And on television, you've got Free Speech TV, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. These are all the ways you can get this show. These are also all the ways that you can get basically any kind of progressive programming across America. You want to hear right-wing hate? You want to hear right-wingers making nakedly racist statements and amplifying Trump's fear? You can hear that in any city in America. Locally, from the local radio station. You don't even have to have a Sirius XM receiver. If you want to watch it on TV, you don't have to go to free speech TV. You know, obviously they have a huge internet presence, but they're principally on Dish and DirecTV. TV. You can just tune into Fox, it's on basic cable. Or it's all over the internet. So here we have this this situation that the more violent it can get, the more the more wild it can get, the more Donald Trump believes it's gonna help him. And I'd been sharing that belief of his up until very recently. I watched him this morning when he did his little press thing in front of the airplane. And he was going on and on and on about the Marxists and the Antifa and the violence and the, you know, da 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 And we're going to do something about this. And if the federal forces came in, we'd, we'd solve it in an hour, et cetera. And I thought, you know, I'm not buying this crap. I wonder if most Americans are buying this. I mean, you know, Nixon might have been able to sell this stuff, and frankly, George Herbert Walker Bush could sell this stuff to white people around the country. You know that Michael Dukakis was responsible for the preceding Republican governor letting Willie Horton out, because the preceding governor was the one who established that program, and he was a Republican. You know, it worked then. You're listening. I don't think to it's going to work now. Hartman program. I think Trump's strategy is working to get that small slice of hate-filled or fear-filled crazies in the streets, but other than that, I don't think it's working. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up?
7: Yeah, Tom, I want to talk about the 17-year-old, what's his name, Wittenhouse?
3: Wittenhouse, yeah.
7: So the problem here with his attorney's argument that this is part of the Second Amendment, that he's part of a well-regulated militia, that applied to the states. So, in other words, if he wants to make that argument, he makes it even worse for himself because the only way he could argue was that this young person was a member of the Illinois state militia, which means, as an Illinois state militiaman, he went in and committed murder in the state of Wisconsin and then crossed back over state lines. This makes. That's something George federal, Washington would
3: not have tolerated.
7: That's <laughs> a federal murder because he's crossed over state lines and then came back to seek refuge, he went over and back state lines where he committed murder in another state. And if he's claiming that he's a member of the Illinois State Militia, then that's the state of Illinois assaulting the state of Wisconsin.
3: That's even worse. Well, I'm wondering if he's guilty of a federal murder charge, you know, crossing state lines in order to kill somebody. Where's Bill Barr? Where's the Justice Department? Why has he not been federally arrested and charged the way that, for example, Tim McVeigh was?
7: That's exactly right. I'm getting at, is that he has murder charges in the state of Wisconsin that would be heard in the Wisconsin state courts and also the federal murder charge.
3: Yeah, but the federal murder charge doesn't seem to be happening. And Donald Trump, you know, is refusing to condemn this guy, which is amazing. Paul, thank you for the call. You know, we'll be rolling along, so stay tuned. In the meantime, tell your friends about how to find this program and other great progressive programming. We're here, and there's a bunch of us. Spread the word. Tag your in. Be good to yourself and people around you.
2: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.